much like in sports where coaches call a timeout to change the the nature of a game and offer a new play i feel like feedback needs to be timely uh, in the classroom as well hey everybody welcome back to highest aspirations an education podcast from elevation education that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic multilingual learners i'm your host steve sophronis So last week, uh, the Elevation team met in Phoenix, Arizona to reflect on our work in 2022 and discuss our future goals. I mention this only because I want listeners to know how passionate everyone is at Elevation about supporting multilingual learners and the teachers who serve them. And that was really evident in every conversation I had with new colleagues and old. It is not often that we all get to see each other in person. And when we do, we recommit ourselves to the goal of helping multilingual learners reach their highest aspirations. If you want to peek behind the scenes and check out some highlights from our time together, you can follow us on social media at at Elevation Ed. You can also find lots of other great resources there if you follow us on social, and that's Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and LinkedIn uh, as well. So uh, take a look behind the scenes there. We put a lot on our social media, including our podcast, by the way. Before we get started with this episode of Highest Aspirations, I want to take a moment to remind everyone that we have tons of new content on our ELL community. Just a few examples as I'm looking at it right now, probably the most important of which is that the 2023 Elevation Scholarship application is now open. If you know a deserving senior who is or was an English learner, please encourage them to apply. We're awarding 10 $2,000 scholarships this year, and that um, scholarship period ends at the beginning of March, so please make sure that you I get the word out as soon as possible. And of course, there's lots of other great information on our community, elevationeducation.com slash ELL community. So this week, we talk about a really important topic, uh, and that is feedback. Some of the questions that we will consider today are, how can we give colleagues feedback in a way that is timely and actionable, and what impact can we expect when this is done effectively? What foundational elements to a working relationship must be present before feedback can be given and received? What kinds of information do principals and school leaders need to have and share prior to beginning an observation and feedback cycle? We discuss these questions and much more with Dr. Esteban Hernandez, who is the Director of Research and Accountability for the Alasal Union School District in Salinas, California. Originally from Puerto Rico, Dr. Hernandez graduated from the UPR with a BA in elementary education with an emphasis on teaching English to Spanish speakers. He has been an educator for more than 30 years and has served as a teacher, school principal, and director. As an English learner himself, Dr. Hernandez strives to advocate for equity for all students so they can develop English language fluency and penetrate content and succeed as individuals and in future college and career opportunities. Dr. Hernandez holds a master's degree with an emphasis in curriculum and instruction and a PhD in educational leadership with research with a research dissertation titled The Influence of In-Situational Coaching on the Reading Achievement of English Learners in the Fifth Grade. And that final topic is what we're really going to talk about today. So please enjoy our conversation with Dr. Esteban Hernandez. Dr. Esteban Hernandez, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Good morning. Thank you for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to see you. It's it's been uh, a long time coming, and I I have to I always like to shout out the person who made these things happen because it's not just me who goes out and finds all these great guests that we bring on to the podcast. It's always 
folks at Elevation or people I know and connections. And in this case, it is uh, my colleague, Jay Muller, who I know you know well and who I have a lot of respect for, who brought us together. So uh, if you're listening, Jay, uh, thanks for bringing us together. I'm happy that he actually helped uh, with this connection as well, as I'm working very closely with him and with Elevation as he was able to introduce a solution that's making our life and our work in our professional setting uh, much better. Yeah, I'm happy to hear that. Jay is very good at his job and somebody, like I said, who I have a lot of respect for. All right, so enough about Jay. Let's start talking about you and the work that you're doing, uh, Dr. Hernandez. So I, I want to start by framing our conversation around a comparison you made when we last spoke between coaches giving feedback to players and educators giving feedback to one another. You noted the difference in feedback cycle times. And I thought that was really interesting. I can see the comparison right away, but that feedback cycle times piece, I think, was the kind of crux of it. So I don't want to give that away. Could you talk with us a little bit about what you mean about that? And the connection I made uh, related to the time related to feedback uh, went back to my doctoral work. And when I completed my dissertation, the the emphasis was on providing feedback related to a situation. So I basically framed it around the notion of what at the time I wrote in relation to institutional coaching. So much like in sports um, where um, coaches um, call a timeout to change the, the nature of a game and offer a new play, uh, I feel like feedback needs to be timely uh, in the classroom as well. Mm -hmm. So what I researched uh, through my own study was the influence of institutional coaching on the reading achievement of English learners in fifth grade. So that was the topic of my dissertation. So the notion or context of it was having a coach in the classroom, call a timeout, even in the middle of a lesson and say, okay, let's send the kids to a, a pair share for a moment because I feel the lesson can be improved if we add this this aspect of it or this or this new element of the of the routine to the routine. And then the result of it was uh when I received uh the post uh I conducted a pretest on a post test uh, and I had a coach providing immediate feedback or calling a timeout in half of the classrooms that were involved and not and not providing that feedback in the other in the others uh, was a higher uh, a higher outcome for the kids on a very targeted standard mm. related to reading so the reading comprehension was higher when the coach was able to call a timeout immediately. So again, the point was about the impact of timely feedback. Yeah. And, you know, I imagine I'm not the only one, like I was, you know, a high school teacher for a long time. Um, and I imagine I'm not the only teacher or former teacher who just heard that and said, wait a minute, stop in the middle of a lesson. How do I, how do I go about doing that? And so I was thinking, you know, well, how do you prove that that works? And you just gave us some proof that you kind of, that's what you did your research on. And if we think about it a little bit more, that's something that folks are going to be able to do who have collaborative relationships in the classroom 
given, I think, a few parameters. One is that you have a lesson plan set up. You know what your pair share is going to be in that example. If you have to kind of go to that play, just like a coach would, they have contingencies in place. I mean, the other thing that that people need in order to give and receive quality feedback is the right relationship, right? People have need to have relationships. We've talked about um, that a lot in the context of teachers and their students. So my question here is, is the follow-up is, is how should this play out between teachers and their supervisors, whether they're principals, department chairs, et cetera? Are there different levels of relationships that you see pan out? Um, how does how does that all work out? Because that's huge. That's hugely important in order to make this work. So my research was in terms of the relationship between the teacher and an instructional coach. So that relationship uh, for it to work best uh, must be based on certain elements that are part of a healthy relationship. And that healthy relationship is based on trust and open and transparent communication. And that can only happen if the person is able to recognize their own areas of strength and their own areas of weakness and not be threatened by the feedback obtained. So between a coach and a teacher that are more uh, at a colleague level compared to a coach and a and a principal or an assistant principal, which is more, more a supervisory uh, type of relationship between a teacher and an administrator. And a lot more daunting would, for many teachers, by the way, yeah. It would be, but it would still based, it, it could still work if there is a relationship that is uh, based on those same uh, tenets related to trust and open communication. And I, and I say that because I, while I had a coach support the research I conducted as part of my work, I still was able to use the same elements when I was a principal because I completed my doctoral work while I was still a site principal. And I used that same experience in the classroom and even during formal observations when I was doing what was more supervisory in nature, uh, I was able to uh, have the trust with teachers to say the lesson can be improved. Even if, if we need to call a timeout now, I'd rather let you know now than, than, than give you a negative mark later. Because I think that we can just send the kids to a quick conversation while I tell you how to improve the lesson. And and that, I mean, I was able to transition the, the concept of coaching uh, to one that was within my supervisory role. Yeah. And, and I think that the importance is feedback is feedback. And regardless of your role, you should be able to say, it's not where I'm sitting in my role is what is my purpose right is my seat in my is my seat in terms of role or if my seat is my is my is my place at the table uh related to purpose and i think that my purpose is to help someone improve and that feedback is to be to help someone improve evaluation sometimes uh, appears to be something considered punitive in nature but in the end is to help someone improve their their craft. Yeah. And hopefully that to be with that that being the purpose. 
yeah, and hopefully, obviously, that trickles down to the students that we serve, which is what it's all about. Let me let me ask you because this all seems to be built upon. Well, I don't want to say it all seems to be built upon, but you've mentioned now a couple times, in order to give this kind of uh, feedback, which happens right away, this, to do this timeout that you see, uh, you know, on the fields and ice rinks or whatever you sport you're watching, um, you you need to be able to have something immediately for your students to do. And ideally, you don't want that to be some kind of busy work because you need to have a moment where you got to, you know, consult with one another. So I'm curious as to how do you, how do both you as a coach or a principal or whatever role you have and a teacher with whom you're collaborating put together, I don't know if I want to call them contingency plans or other plans so that in a, in a moment in a classroom, you can stop and have kind of a quick huddle. Cause that seems to be, that's gotta be challenging if you don't have something in place. Just curious if you have any tips on that, because I can imagine there's people listening saying, well, wh what do I do? I mean, how do I stop? And, and what do I do with the kids? I don't want to just get them busy work. So I get, I get, uh, again, the point in being able to engage in this type of coaching or feedback uh, exchange is understanding of how the classroom operates. And if there are routines in place that are set up to allow for it, that's why I'm saying that it may not work in every single setting mm -hmm. if the conditions are not there. So a teacher that has routines where the kids know uh, when the teacher tells them, boys and girls, I need you to uh, think about the next question and I'm gonna get back to you, ask your partner, uh, something uh, basic related to the content of the lesson. Um, and that condition is something that the kids already understand as part of their daily routines. Yeah. Now, this type of exchange would be, would throw someone off if the, teach, if the, if the students don't understand what, what those parameters are. So, I mean, it's something that, that can be easily achieved if we build that type of right, right. Um, short or quick uh, interaction within daily routines, then the kids would know they won't get lost. And it's only a minute type of interaction. Why? I mean, minute to two minutes where I call a timeout, let's come back together, uh, grab a couple of thoughts from the exchange, and then let's go on with the lesson sure. with the improvements offered by the coach. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up. I mean, I, I kind of was leading you in that direction. I figured that's what you would say. Um, but you have to have those routines in place. And I have to think that students, no matter what age, maybe not super uh, young, but but most students from in a K-12 setting would probably see some inherent value in what was happening between two teachers in a room who were conversing about how to best serve them, them, you know, the students who are, who are, who are trying to learn in the class and to see two adults kind of giving feedback to one another and figuring out the best way to go about it, just like players in a field probably has a bit of a trickle down to them as well. Um, so I think that's really interesting, but it wouldn't, if there weren't routines in place, it could definitely kind of go in the wrong direction. I imagine. Yes. That, you need some protocols, even if it's from a teacher to teacher type of interaction, like through a professional learning community type of setting, a PLC, uh, where they're getting together to discuss with colleagues. Uh, sometimes you need almost scripted uh, uh, conversations 
about how we go about addressing a specific element of data or feedback, uh, even between adults, because yeah. some may may go off on a tangent that has nothing to do with <laughs> with a routine that needs to be strengthened to support uh, learning in the end. Yeah. So let me go in a bit of a different direction here, because we're we're talking about uh, collaboration. We're talking about coaching. We're talking about improvement. All of those things are really, in, in my mind, a part of what it means to engage in high quality professional learning, to, you know, be a mentor and a mentee, to uh, give high quality observations. And so given the high numbers that we continue to see of teacher turnover and educators leaving the profession, what role does this kind of um, activity, you know, when it comes to professional learning, observations, mentoring, et cetera, play in recruiting and, and I guess more importantly, retaining teachers since they're already there. And I'm, I'm particularly interested in obviously those particular uh, teachers who are serving multilingual learners. Have you seen, you know, this, this, this help boost teacher morale and retain them? And, and is there any effort to help use this in, in recruiting even, or is it, is it specifically a retaining thing? I think empathy is, uh, is critical and that, um, is offered by coaches often, but it has to be offered by the site administrator when you're engaging with that new teacher that is nervous. And if that new teacher knows that that, that principal cares, which is another element of the relationship that needs to be fostered, then they'll be vulnerable to say, you know, I, I honestly don't know how to do that. I need you to give me feedback and I need you to provide me support. So with that with that feedback obtained or received, then the principal can tier levels of support uh, based on, on the level of experience or the level of uh, confidence as a teacher. I mean, it's not just new teachers. You have experienced teachers that are at times struggling as well. But if they receive the, the right feedback and also the right support, then it's likely they can improve. With new teachers, I often had uh, the approach of connecting them with someone that I felt would be able to guide them best as a teacher colleague. Mm -hmm. So when I first met with them, I would be very firm about the fact that you will hear everyone in your grade level telling you, you have to do this, 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 and you will be overwhelmed by the end of the first week if you try to incorporate five different perspectives. So my feedback was always, in my own reflection, after meeting the person and observing them uh, initially, would be to let them know before their first formal interaction in terms of an observation, I would say, I need you to really stay connected with this person on your team. And I would pair them up or connect them because I would see uh, what what one what what they could offer each other. And I think that more than the feedback I could offer, it was the feedback that uh, collectively we could offer. Right. So as a teacher colleague and also as an administrator. But I think that we have to 
we have to demystify the relationship between the administrator and the teacher to not just be um, evaluative. And if you're an instructional leader that is able to provide feedback in a way that is not intimidating, but with empathy, that's why I started with empathy as a word. Yeah, yeah. Because we all started as teachers and we all felt um, that threat when the principal came in to observe the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have to let them know, I'm going to treat you with dignity and I'm going to offer you some feedback and I'm going to provide support to see you be the best person you can be. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and I want to come back to you just said something really interesting that I, I just wrote jotted it down demystify the relationship between administrators and teachers i think that's a great way to put it you started with empathy and you talked about support so i'm going to get back to that in a second but I, as you were speaking the last couple questions i i asked i couldn't help but think about it just this morning uh today we're recording this um right after both of us um came back from a break and i don't know about you but i'm a little, I have some cobwebs still from the vacation. It was much needed. And so I, I started my morning by by reading a little bit of a book that um, I'm getting ready to interview someone else for in the podcast. And I'm going to hold it up. I know not everybody's seeing the video, but this is called Portraits of Collaboration. Um, it's uh, Andrea Honigsfeld um, and Maria Dove. And Andrea Honigsfeld and Maria Dove and I have, have, have collaborated quite a bit. And there's a chapter with uh, Valentina Gonzalez, who is wonderful and pretty well known in the field at this point. And it's called Cultivating collaborative practices with reluctant teachers. So you're talking about a lot of new teachers, but you also mentioned that, you know, veteran teachers also need help sometimes. I think a lot of the times the chapter is really interesting because first of all, it, she says, yes, there are teachers who are reluctant to work with others and are reluctant to do the kinds of thing that you're talking about sometimes for very good reasons. But the strategies that you're talking about are very similar to the strategies that Valentina lays out in this, in this chapter and they're effective. And so coming back to what you said at the very beginning about empathy and support, those are uh, kind of relationship pieces, emotional tools that you can use, right? So what? And, and so, so those are two, I think, characteristics, but I'm going to expand this question a little bit to more than characteristics. If I'm a principal or a school leader or a teacher evaluator or a coach, what both characteristics and information, whether it be data or whatever the case may be, do these folks need in order to be able to provide quality feedback for teachers serving multilingual learners? So going beyond empathy, what else do they need? And you're referring to the characteristics uh, from the uh, the leaders or from the teacher, from the coaches or from the teacher colleagues? I'd love to hear both. Like, like if I'm, if I'm, because there's, there's a difference, as you mentioned, between an, it, it, ideally there isn't a difference between an administrator and a coach, but we know that there is. So I'd love to hear like those folks who are giving feedback, what information, characteristics, we know empathy, we know they need to provide support. Do they need to be able to provide that high quality feedback? And it's, it's a loop, I know. So you can also mention teacher, the teachers are going to need something as well. I understand that. So I think that in order to provide feedback, um, from a coach to uh, to a teacher, there needs to be an understanding of what the expectations are. What are are there clear outcomes that that are set as part of my teacher coach relationship? I am I working with you on an impact cycle to address how English learners are mastering. Uh, a particular language function 
related to listening, speaking, reading, or writing? Or am I emphasizing a reading standard uh, related to text complexity? Uh, so I have to go in with some critical attributes that I understand uh, related to that particular aspect of instruction. So then I can evaluate as a coach uh, what is evident and what I need to offer some support on. So that's that's an element of evidence that I need. That's, that's uh, information, that's data. Mm -hmm. I need to understand what it is that needs to happen with regards to uh, that particular uh, standard and then have a conversation prior to my interaction uh, about what we're going to be uh, working on. And that could be something that as a site uh, is an initiative or an emphasis uh, or something that is particular to that impact uh, or coaching cycle. So then uh, once I'm part of that interaction as a coach, then I would um, then dis discuss the attributes and then and then have the person reflect on whether that person as a teacher felt those critical attributes were part of the lesson and then which ones were not evident. And then as a coach, I would uh, provide feedback in terms of what I observed or didn't. Right. From a principal perspective, it's a little bit different because then I would be evaluating what additional level of support um, I can bring in beyond the coach if it's not happening yet after coaching cycles are in place so that then that person feels supported and and it's more a global view because i'm not necessarily going in as a principal to observe a particular standard but the general uh function of the classroom or the general routines in the classroom how things are working in related to engagement related to context related to standards, related to curriculum, related to safety, which are all the aspects that you have to come in as a principal, not just exclusive to one particular uh, coaching session related to a particular standard, which is more the function of a coach. Yeah, it's, I mean, just going, if you go back two or three minutes and listen to everything you just said, it's a lot. It's a lot that somebody has to be responsible for. And so, you know, what I know a lot of, school leaders, principals, and even coaches run into with this uh, when they're supporting teachers who are working with multilingual learners is they may not actually have the knowledge or expertise or experience they need to work with with those that particular growing demographic of students. I know it's something that you're obviously well versed in. H have have you seen that come up as a as a problem? And if so, how have you gone about um handling that? So I think that what is essential is to understand that feedback is is critical, but it takes a different uh, approach when you're providing feedback for students who are multilingual learners uh, who are not uh, fluent in the language. So let me give you an example. When you're, um, when you're generating questions um, where you want to have students respond uh, as part of a lesson, you may need to add additional layers in your questioning to be able to extract that understanding from students whose first language is not the dominant language. 
So how do you address that with multilingual learners is by being cognizant of the fact that the standard approach for, for developing questions or having questioning strategies may not be sufficient in order to address the needs of, of multilingual learners or English mm -hmm. learners, because you may need to add additional levels of questions to be able to capture uh, that understanding for kids who are not fluent in English, for example, in our case. So it's like not assuming, which is something that goes, and, I, and I'll talk a little bit about uh, a book that I'm reading on, on data and how we cannot just think about one level of evidence or source as indicative of what we can know about kids and their learning. Mm -hmm. In this case, with English learners, I gave you the example of questioning strategies that must be differentiated in order to capture what kids are actually understanding if they're not dominant in the language. So multilingual, multilingual learners or English learners, however way we want to term them, term them or label them, mm -hmm. kids that are not necessarily as fluent in the language. So we need to differentiate our approach. Sure. Yeah. And, and that, you know, that seems to be a challenge for, again, some coaches or building administrators who don't have much experience with that. It seems to be changing. There seems to be more attention being paid to it. It's certainly something that we're focusing in a lot on here um, at Elevation as well. And we're seeing some improvement on um, as well. So, Esteban, I want to change gears a little bit here because, and it, we, again, like, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, it, we've been trying, we've been planning this for a long time and I'm happy that the day has finally come to to have a conversation with you. And so I hope that this question is still relevant. Um, when we talked before, you you expressed strong opinions um, about what we need to do as we navigate this kind of post-COVID world and education. I think a year ago and certainly two years ago, this was like a really hot topic and perhaps too hot. Perhaps it was like overstated. Mm -hmm. You know, people were talking all about it. it. Seems to have calmed down some, which I'm not necessarily sure is a good thing um, because I think as I think many of us think we had a we have a moment that we could innovate and do things differently. You've said that we need to think about responding versus reacting, um, and that we need to get away from survival mode so that we can thrive. So my question is, how do you see this playing out in the context of what we're talking about, which is providing high quality feedback and support that will allow teachers of multilingual learners to excel in their work and maybe more importantly, to stay in the long term and to make a prolonged impact for hundreds and thousands of students rather than just for one or two or three years. So I think that right now everyone is considering the factors post COVID that have changed education. And I don't know if we have spent enough time um, considering those factors, uh, or reacting to those factors. And that the conversation prior to that was, are we responding or are we reacting? Are we seeing education functioning the same way post COVID as it was? Or did we come from, from, from a pandemic back to what we thought was a normal pre-pandemic and are uh, interacting with everyone as we were pre-pandemic without considering the factors that could be affecting learning. And I think that every teacher and every administrator and every, 
every school district is looking at those impacts or factors that that affected students in various ways and uh, and administrators and teachers. I mean, do we see higher levels of anxiety? Do we see kids coming in with behaviors that are very emotional because they may have lost loved ones or they may have been in situations that were very difficult that we have not even begun to address? Mm -hmm. So that was the point I shared before about are we treating education the way we treated it pre-pandemic or are we reacting? So I think that it's important to consider what are the specific factors that are that are unique to every community and see how to best respond with coordinated efforts that will allow us to provide the services that be that would be specific to every individual student's uh, particular situation. Because those cannot be disregarded if we are to truly show the empathy needed to promote the highest levels of learning. So, we cannot ignore that they are humans and that they could have suffered quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. And and and, and absolutely. And I think everybody, you know, there are certain certainly levels of trauma and levels of suffering, but uh, I think everybody's affected in some way. And I, I know I, I, I can't even imagine. And again, 17 years as a high school teacher, and I, I can't even imagine being a, a teacher now or during the pandemic, except the fact that my wife is, and I see it every day with her and I speak with teachers all the time, uh, nothing but respect for everything that, that people have been doing to support students throughout this, um, this, this process here. <clears throat> and you talked about, you know, you you said like that every community and every context almost and every student needs something different, which kind of leads me to my next question that also kind of has to do with the pandemic. So we, I think a lot of people, um, well, I'm generalizing and I don't want to do that, but there may be a perception that online learning uh, was horrible for everybody and, and it was horrible for a lot of people in a lot of different ways because we didn't know how to do it the right way and it was it was tough. But we also can't ignore the fact that some students actually thrived um, in online learning. And I know that there are many students who kind of wish that they could still be doing that and they can't, or it's very difficult for them to access it. So what lessons can we draw from this as we design learning experiences moving forward? And again, particularly focusing on our multilingual learners. So I think that the the important uh one of the important lessons to to um, consider or to learn from uh, has to do with the fact that people figured out what to do for individual students since that March 13th date when when the world came to a close <laughs> and we had to shut down. Yeah, and people needed the the word that you have probably seen all over the educational context right now is equity. So for some kids, the virtual learning environment provided a more equitable opportunity to learn, and some districts from that experience, that was a pandemic experience established systems to continue that for kids for whom that was more equ an equitable setting to get what they needed. So considering 
English learners and multilingual learners uh, equity, providing what they equitably need based on where they currently are. Some may need that opportunity based on factors that impacted their esteem, their emotional uh, health, and their confidence with coming back in or their parents, their families, um, desire for them to come back into a system where it was, when it was so scary and they needed a more protected space. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think kids thrived um, through virtual learning and many others suffered. So it was uh, an experience that no one was prepared for. And now the learning is now if we ever had to endure something like it, there was so much learning from it that it could be an enhancement to systems across the world because of the fact that there was so much learning from it. And I think some districts decided to take on that opportunity, including mine, which we now have a virtual academy going as mm -hmm. part as school number 13. So I think that it is an opportunity that many parents and students benefit from. And we cannot disregard that some would would thrive in that that environment again. It's about equity, and if you if you hear, there are so many uh, experiences shared about about the importance of it, especially for students who are not fluent. Having equitable access to the language needed to penetrate content is is critical. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's really interesting the way that you framed that. I mean, you, you frame it around equity, and if <clears throat> excuse me. If a virtual environment is going to provide a more equitable experience, then it's our really responsibility to provide that. And I love hearing you say that you your district has um, had a, a it does have a virtual um, campus, I guess you call it, or a virtual uh, option. And I I didn't I didn't do my research before I came into this conversation, but I'm now curious as to how many districts. I wonder if there's statistics on this actually do have those now that didn't before. Um, there's always been opportunities like virtual high school, it's take some classes online that people take advantage of. But the access to those have been, I think, a little bit shifty, um, not that they haven't been accessible everywhere. So it'd be interesting. I'll follow up a little bit and learn a little bit more about that, because I think that's a really important point, that idea of equity. And if a virtual experience provides a more equitable experience for uh, students, then we have, you know, we have not only the responsibility, but now we have probably the tools and the experience to do it the right way, whereas before we were all learning. I agree. And I think it's more about the word of opportunity. Mm -hmm. the opportunity to be able to be in that environment uh, that would provide for equity um, that some students would otherwise not have uh, as much access to. So I, I, I get the key is equity, equity and uh, an equitable opportunity. Right. We always right. talk about we cut, we talk about equal opportunity, but in this case it would be equitable opportunity. Yeah, we can get into that. That uh, there's all kinds of visuals on equity. I'm sorry, on equality versus equity. That I'm sure you're noting. You hear a lot of folks have seen. There's many, many of them. So pick the one that that best serves you. But you're absolutely right about that. And you um, know, I just wanted to say that uh, on that regard, locally, we our our neighbor district also has one. So uh, our most um, the closest district to ours also has a virtual academy. And again. The equitable, equitable opportunity lies in that every student there has a learning agreement that's specific to their, their needs and a commitment to be able to thrive in that alternative type of environment. Right.
Love it. Well, there's I, there's there's so much more that we could get to here. I stay on where I where about. I have I only have a couple more questions for you. We're about a time here, and um, this next question is a question that that may seem a little irrelevant to many people, but it's one that I've actually been wanting to ask you for a, a long time. And now I'm looking at your background, and I'm seeing, I see at least, I see many giraffes. I know you have a a tie with a giraffe on it. Um, and for those who who are just listening, the the office that 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 Dr. Hernandez is 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 full of drafts. And my colleague Jay has mentioned to me, who I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast episode, that you like giraffes. So I have not I have not asked you why, and I'm going to ask you why now because I I need to know. I think there's some relevance here. There is relevance, and interestingly, uh, the name of the of the pod, podcast highest aspirations has a lot to do with with why I like giraffes. So it goes back to my my second year teaching and it goes back to a, a context or a concept that we've been addressing with coaching today. So I was as a second year teacher in a session where the instructional coach, coach asked the participants, me being a teacher at the time, what we think of something that we collect that and then why we actually collect that at the time i was only 22 and actually my first year 21 uh and and i wasn't collecting anything i never thought of as a 21 year old you know man to collect anything but she actually said think about something that you collect and why you collect it or you would collect it so then I was thinking about to same placing it within the context of nature or, or or something within the home or the family and and put it in within the within the notion of what you value. So I thought, okay. She also said, what about learning is important to you? So so in terms of that, it was about making connections. So, so the brain looks for patterns. Okay. So then, okay. So the brain looks for patterns to make connections, to help you make connections between one concept and another. And then what was the other, the other value I had was reaching higher. So then what in nature reaches high that also has beautiful patterns? Ah, so the giraffes do. Giraffes reach high and they have beautiful patterns and they're all individual. They're all unique. So that's where it came to be. And I now have more than a hundred giraffes that have <laughs> been gifts from others, including this tie. <laughs> I love I it. Was prudent to wear today. But it's been more than 30 years now since I came up with that idea of something to collect. Well, I think that's great, and I'm actually thinking now that we that we need to if we if we had uh, and maybe we should if we had like a logo for each individual podcast episode that we did, this one would definitely have to have a giraffe pattern or perhaps there's a photo of you with your giraffe um, uh, tie on. But I love that. That makes sense. Oh, that's perfect. That's Here's perfect. One. Here's one more. I'm I'm afraid though if we if we if we start to put the giraffes in the highest aspirations podcast, I might be facing a lawsuit. <laughs> so this one was one. I didn't get a plaque when I when I left uh, my last school setting when I uh, 
moved over to district office. This was my gift from my staff. I love it. And if, again, if you're listening, it is a beautiful, beautiful mask. mask. Oh, it's a mask of a giraffe. I love it. Yeah. Perfect. Well, mystery, mystery unraveled. I, I seriously have, you asked me, we, we had a, like a planning conversation for this a couple of weeks ago. And I, you asked me if I wanted to know, I said, no, I don't want to know until we actually have the conversation. Cause I don't know what everybody else knows. So now we know, which is awesome. Um, all right, last question, um, Esteban. How is there a way that people can learn more about the work you're doing? You mentioned LinkedIn. I, I don't know if there's a place that folks can go to kind of learn a little bit more about you or connect with you. You gave us a lot to think about, so I want to make sure that we uh, we can kind of continue this. We'll have a blog post of this episode up with some links as well. But um, but where else might people go? I will be posting through LinkedIn, and uh, colleagues can find me there. Uh, Esteban Hernandez. Uh, people know me as Doctor H. So I'll make sure that uh, I'll bring in something in related to reaching higher as well. Great. And connections related to that. And uh, I have been reading street data. So one thing that I wanted to say about that, and I uh, wove it through the, through the conversation we had today, was about the fact that we cannot rely on uh, dead data. That data can become autopsy type of data, which is usually the data that comes from standardized metrics. So we have to look at what's live um, and street data from um, Shane Suffer uh, and Jamila Dogan uh, addresses the importance of not just looking at um, data that is pertaining to a standard metric, but four types of data are critical, demographic, data that are related to our students and who they are, especially our multilingual or English learners. Mm -hmm. we, need, we need data that is related to student learning, which comes from the assessments that are that are standardized, but the most important ones are those that happen daily, uh, including those that come from questioning strategies, like I said earlier, uh, through our formative uh, metrics. Process data, what's happening throughout the system. Uh, through our instructional leadership teams or our PLCs, and also perception data. What are people thinking about the work we do? And that is that is more empathy related than anything else. Sure. We have to listen to that. Yeah, thanks for breaking that down. I, you're not the first person who's mentioned that book, Street Data, um, and I have not read it yet. Uh, but now that you just gave me those four pieces of data, it makes it even more interesting to me. I love the title of it too, and I think it really lends credence to a lot of the data points that maybe we don't really consider um as valuable as perhaps we should um and you know relating them to multilingual learners you know a lot of that everything that you mentioned is is extremely important the more we know about our students and by the way the more we know it about the our colleagues uh, and when we're collaborating with them uh, the better off we're going to be in terms of having both the empathy and the knowledge we need to work with them which goes right back to the conversation that we had um today and street data uh, doesn't necessarily address the four the four points of data that I mentioned that comes in from other work I've done, uh, but the point they make is about not just focusing on standardized. Gotcha. That's why the other three. Because, Thank you for uh, the data is just uh, making sure that we're not just looking at one source, uh, and I gave you the other examples com coming from other sources. Great. Thank you for clarifying that. Really appreciate it. As you can, as you can tell, I have not read the book, even though it has been mentioned to me, and now I really feel like I have to. Um, and with that, Dr. Esteban Hernandez, it has been a pleasure chatting with you. This has been, as I said, a long time coming. Um, uh, the conversation did not disappoint. You give us a lot to think about and uh, look forward to 
uh, future collaboration. And I'll shout out Jay Muller one more time for, for bringing us together. Um, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day. I know you're just back to school and I'm sure you have a long to-do list to get to. So thank you so much. Thank you, uh, Steve. And thank you to my friend, Jay. Uh, this has been a great experience. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.